0: As happy as a butter clam When tides are high I sing A grateful ode to Puget Sound The land of everything I love it from Tulalip To Puyallup Squim and pished, And to the Docey Wallops Where so many times i fished From Brynn to the Boca Chiel, From Lummi to La Push And from the lordly sawduck to lovely duck-a-bush. From Samish to Sammamish, Suquamish to Quillacine. The climate is so friendly, it's a land that's evergreen.
1: Hello, and welcome to the History of the Evergreen State podcast. I'm your host, John C. And thank you for joining me today for episode 15, Victor Smith vs. Port Townsend. I want to start by saying I hope you all enjoyed the spookier-themed episodes that I did for the month of October. This episode will be a return to what I was doing previously. The Customs District of Puget Sound for the Washington Territory would be established by the United States Congress on the 14th of February of 1851. The first gentleman that was appointed to be the Collector of Customs for Puget Sound was named Simpson P. Moses, who ended up choosing Olympia as the official port of entry into Washington Territory. This resulted in Mr. Simpson's office being way too far away, and he found it incredibly difficult to monitor the shipping activities that went on in the upper part of Puget Sound, and he quickly recommended that the port of entry be moved to the City of Dreams, Port Townsend. I'm not going to get into the history of the city that Whiskey built quite yet, because that's an entire episode or two, actually. But that will come out eventually, and I already have it partially written, so... Whidbey Island pioneer Colonel Isaac Eby ended up succeeding Mr. Simpson Moses as the collector of customs in 1853. It's interesting to note here that for his troubles, of which there were many, he earned $1,200 a year, and the next year he succeeded in relocating the customs house to Port Townsend. Now, this meant that all inbound ships were required to stop at Port Townsend to clear customs. This usually meant that they then had to wait several hours after for the winds and tides to be favorable enough to continue on with their voyage. This also meant that ship captains would often pay their crews while they anchored off Port Townsend in the bay, resulting in the majority of the money being spent right there in town. This led many early residents to believe that their city would be the New York of the West or the San Francisco of the Pacific Northwest. But I'm not really going to get into that now because, like I said again, that's an entire episode worth. (laughs) On the 30th of July, 1861, President Lincoln, at the behest of the Secretary of the Treasury Salmon P. Chase, appointed a gentleman by the name of Victor Smith. He was a newspaper editor from far off Cincinnati, Ohio. He was meant to be the new collector of customs for the district of Puget Sound, Washington Territory. Almost immediately upon his arrival to Port Townsend, he loathed it with a strong passion, even going so far as to refer to the place as nothing more than a collection of huts populated by uncivil and immoral Westerners. The first action he took upon reaching Port Townsend was to write a letter to the Treasury Department in which he recommended that the port of entry should be immediately transferred to Port Angeles. He further went on to argue that the current location was easily susceptible to invasion by the British from their naval base at Esquimalt on Vancouver Island, who, Victor Smith thought, were surely going to join forces with the Confederate States of America. The governor of the colony of Vancouver Island, James Douglas, who played a significant role in Episode Eight's The Pig War, would write to his superiors during this time that since the U.S. had no defenses in the Puget Sound, the Royal Navy might occupy Puget Sound without molestation. Governor Douglas thought, why not send two regiments of troops? He further argued, There is no reason why we should not push overland from Puget Sound and establish advance posts on the Columbia River Maintaining it as a permanent frontier, though nothing would ever actually come of this. Essentially, the British that were on Vancouver Island were figuratively just rattling their sabers to scare off any feared American threats of further incursion to their territory, but these tactics obviously worked in riling up Victor Smith. Anticipating the approval to relocate the customs house. Smith formed the Port Angeles Townsite Company with four other men, which went on to acquire land for the new community that was even less developed than Port Townsend was at the time. The dreamers of Port Townsend soon caught wind of what they surely saw was the dirty move against their city in Victor Smith's promotion of moving the Customs House, and soon this feeling of hatred that Victor Smith felt for Port Townsend would be mutually felt by everyone across town. Victor Smith tried to assuage the people by telling them that the land company was only organized to build fortifications for the invasion that Victor supposedly feared was about to happen, but the citizens of Port Townsend remained very skeptical of this. When Victor's letters to the Treasury Department failed to achieve immediate results, he resolved to travel to Washington, D.C. to push for the relocation of the Customs House to Port Angeles and to also construct fortifications to protect it from British invasion on behalf of the Confederates. Because there was no deputy collector of customs and he distrusted all of the townspeople of Port Townsend, Victor ended up asking the captain of the revenue cutter, Joe Lane, to appoint an officer from the crew to be the acting collector of customs, with the job ultimately being given to Lt. James H. Merriman, Lauren B. Hastings, one of the pioneering founders of Port Townsend, would be appointed as his deputy. Arriving in the nation's capital, Victor Smith quickly began to promote the superior location of Port Angeles, because it was nearer the ocean than Port Townsend. He eventually convinced Congress to move the Customs District of Puget Sound to Port Angeles, and on the 18th of June, 1862, Congress made the relocation official. The following day, President Lincoln signed an executive order reserving Eda's Hook and all the land within its protective arm, including its lighthouse, as a military reservation. 3,000 acres of land would also be set aside as a townsite reserve, and lots would end up being sold with the money from the sale going into the coffers of the Treasury Department to fund the ongoing civil war. However, events were not going as Victor Smith had wanted them to. While he was celebrating his success, the acting collector of customs in Port Townsend, Lt. Merriman, was diligently auditing the books of the customs house. He soon happened upon a substantially sized discrepancy that brought the accounts some $15,000 short, which is about half a million dollars today. This immediately drew Merriman's suspicion and he reported the discrepancy by letter to the Treasury Department. Victor Smith returned to Port Townsend aboard the lighthouse tender USS Schubrick on the 1st of August, 1862. After making his way disgustedly through the town he so loathed, he made it to the Customs House, where Lt. Merriman promptly refused him access, going on to accuse him of committing embezzlement against the federal government and insisting that he would continue to refuse Victor Smith entry to resume his duties until he received clearance from the Treasury Department humiliated and pissed off beyond measure smith departed the customs house and trudged off back to the lighthouse tender he arrived on just about an hour later the captain of the shoebrick, lieutenant wilson showed up at the customs house and let lieutenant merriman know that he had been ordered by victor smith to load the three 12 pound cannons that were aboard the shoe brick and train them on the customs house the captain of the shoebrick told Merriman that if he did not surrender the records within 15 minutes, Victor Smith had instructed him to begin the shelling of the city's commercial district along Water Street. Lieutenant James Merriman and his acting deputy, Lauren Hastings, met briefly with the city council to inform them of this recent frightening development. To save Port Townsend from the impending attack, the two ended up surrendering the keys to the customs house before the threatened bombardment commenced. Captain Wilson of the Shoebrick took receipt for the files he received as they were loaded aboard his ship and then set sail westwards for Port Angeles. Now it was the citizens of Port Townsend to become pissed off, and so they decided to put together a delegation to travel to Olympia, where they would complain vigorously to Governor C. William Pickering about Smith's criminal and unauthorized actions. After a nice little chat between the delegation and the U.S. Commissioner Harry Gill, he ended up issuing arrest warrants for Victor Smith and Captain Wilson for assault with intent to kill. In another interesting turn of events, when the Shoebrick returned and docked at Port Townsend, a United States Marshal boarded the vessel and attempted to serve Victor Smith, but the sniveling scoundrel was not aboard the ship that afternoon. Then the marshal made a move to serve Captain Wilson, but he would be rebuffed and castigated when the captain told the marshal, You've got no damn authority aboard a government vessel. Confused by this, and slightly taken aback by the captain's tone, the marshal then left the shoebrick to confer with U.S. Commissioner Harry Gill, who must have met the marshal with at least a little bit of frustration and told him to get back on that damn vessel and arrest that captain. As the Marshal began to once again approach the Shoebrick in his little rowboat, Captain Wilson roared for the crew to engage the two side paddle wheels, which caused so much turbulence that the rowboat was not able to get close enough, and then Shoebrick promptly departed west towards Port Angeles, leaving the flabbergasted Marshal rocking in their wake. Commissioner Gill convened a federal grand jury in Olympia in September of 1862, A contingent of over three dozen men from Port Townsend were sent down to Olympia aboard the schooner Potter to testify against both Victor Smith and Captain Wilson. The contingent from Port Townsend was still feeling pretty pissed off as they made their way down Puget Sound. Along the way, the schooner had to pass the shoebrick that was anchored off of Fort Nisqually. When the Potter passed, the Port Townsend men had the cannon aboard the schooner fire a mocking salute and then proceeded to hang a sign over the stern of the schooner, jokingly renaming her Revenue Ship No. 2. This insult would not be lost on Victor Smith and the rest of the crew aboard the shoebrick that day. The grand jury that Commissioner Gill convened finally returned a 13-count indictment against Victor Smith that charged him with embezzlement of public funds, the procurement of false vouchers, resisting arrest, and assault with intent to kill against the citizens of Port Townsend. This damning indictment would promptly be sent to Washington, D.C. to be reviewed by the Treasury Department, and an agent of the Treasury was sent to Washington Territory to investigate the charges that were leveled against Victor Smith. Secretary Chase would eventually clear Victor Smith of all charges leveled against him, and the indictment was totally quashed. Victor was still pretty pissed off about the actions of the Potter that day when they mockingly fired a salute to the Shrewbrick, with Victor claiming that the Potter illegally impersonated a government vessel and fired upon the Shoebrick. Seeing the bullshit of this accusation, Secretary Chase immediately dismissed the charges leveled against the men aboard the Potter. Things then settled down between Victor Smith and the good people of Port Townsend for the next several months, mainly because Victor occupied himself building a house for his family and a large building that he wound up renting to the government for the customs house. It just seems like this guy couldn't do anything without first thinking how he could milk the government and continue to line his pockets. The dismissal of the indictment probably was a huge boost to his confidence and a sort of stamp of approval on his embezzlement of $15,000. The residents of Port Townsend, however, were not quite ready to move on from the whole Customs House subject. Over the time Victor Smith was keeping himself busy with his construction projects, a dossier was being built up against him. The members of the town then went on to denounce Victor and what they viewed to be the unlawful transfer of the port of entry to Port Angeles, which they claimed should have never been allowed to happen due to the embezzlement charges that were quickly thrown under the rug. President Abraham Lincoln finally relented to the demands of the citizens of Port Townsend and removed Victor Smith as the collector of customs for Puget Sound. President Lincoln went on to tell Secretary Chase that the degree of dissatisfaction with Victor was far too great for him to retain the position. Though the president did give permission for Secretary Chase to name Victor Smith a special agent of the Treasury Department, this placed him in charge of all the customs district on the entire Pacific coast. Victor Smith's deputy collector of customs, Mr. L.C. Gunn, would officially replace him on the 1st of January of 1864. The winter of 1863 saw a massive landslide take place in the Olympic Mountains, resulting in the curation of a huge reservoir on the hills above Port Townsend. This natural dam burst suddenly on the night of the 16th of December, 1863, which sent a raging torrent of water onto and completely through the little settlement of Port Angeles. Victor Smith was actually on his way to Washington, D.C., but his wife and four young children had stayed behind at their Port Angeles home. Luckily, a logjam had formed just above the Smith's residence, which diverted the water away and gave Mrs. Smith just enough time to save herself and her little ones. Not so lucky in this disaster were two Customs House employees who were struck and killed by falling debris while the Customs House itself was swept off its foundation and ended up being carried well out into the Strait of Juan de Fuca. One dubious article I came across on my online researches tried to turn this event into a buried treasure mystery, but really that's just flat out bullshit to be quite honest. The collapsed customs house would actually be found by members of the Macaw Nation, which they proceeded to tow back to the shoreline. Inside this ruined house, they discovered the strong box that was scattered among the remaining debris, which is pretty lucky considering that it had spent a good amount of time floating out in the Strait of Juan de Fuca, and I'd imagine the strong box was pretty heavy, so it's kind of surprising no wave action or anything managed to knock it loose, sending it down to the depths of the waters. Upon finding the strongbox, the macaws busted it open and grabbed everything of value that they could find. The useless-to-them records would simply be pitched right into the strait, some of which would eventually be recovered, surprisingly. In February of 1864, Victor's brother, Henry Smith, told authorities that he had some information regarding the strongbox that belonged to his brother that was lost in the flood. He continued to tell them that it was in fact hidden in a nearby Clallam village. This strong box was reported to contain $1,500 in banknotes and $7,500 in $20 gold coins. No trace of the gold coins were ever found, and the McCaws claimed to have used the paper notes to start a fire and burned the strong box. Eight Clallam men were arrested for the supposed theft, but only one of them would be convicted. Port Townsend began to see its hopes for getting back its Customs House begin to rise in early 1865, especially so when Fred A. Wilson was appointed the Collector of Customs for the District of Puget Sound on the 7th of March that year. This was excellent news for the City of Dreams because Wilson was a longtime resident of the city and almost immediately proposed the return of the Customs House to Port Townsend. Arthur Denny, the Washington Territorial Representative to Congress, agreed, and he introduced a bill in front of Congress to that very effect, which passed on July 25th of 1865. The City of Dreams had emerged triumphant over their rival to the West. The relocation of the Customs House proved to be critical to the growth of the economy and the subsequent building boom that occurred in Port Townsend afterwards. There was exuberant rejoicing when the Customs District of Puget Sound was officially returned to Port Townsend. As the Schubrick sailed into the bay with the remains of the Customs House, the cannon on Union Dock would be fired in a triumphant salute. Fred Wilson, the hometown hero, would be honored with a public ceremony with most of the entire city turning out to celebrate him. Soon after, the people of Port Townsend began to clamor for the construction of a modern and larger customs house befitting the prosperous city of dreams. Their wishes would finally start to be realized on the 31st of December of 1885, when the United States government purchased a plot of land in the city for $9,000. On this plot, the government planned to erect a huge masonry building to house a post office, courthouse, and the customs house, of course. Construction began on the masonry walls of the basement in 1887 but was quickly delayed due to needed authorization to construct a much larger building than was originally intended. The modified building plan and design would ultimately be designed by architects M.E. Bell and W.J. Edbrook out of Chicago, Illinois, with work resuming in August of 1889. After taking more than eight years to construct, the City of Dreams, finally got its modern and spacious customs house that also housed a large and updated post office. Total cost for this construction was $241,822.81, which is about $7.1 million today given inflation. Due to the near decade it took to construct this grand building, the optimism felt at the beginning of construction by nearly everyone across town had long since dried up, mainly due to the devastating effects of the Panic of 1893 and the ensuing years-long depression that followed. Basically, Port Townsend throughout this time had banked its hopes on receiving a railroad connection to the rest of the state so that it could therefore compete with Seattle, Tacoma, Olympia, and all of the other cities that were beginning to far outpace it by that time, as the preeminent city on Puget Sound And when the railroads and banks started to fail across the country and in Port Townsend during the panic and afterwards, it basically resulted in the near desertion of the town and populations plummeted for years. It wasn't for another about 50, 60 years before the population of Port Townsend would actually rebound to be at levels of the 1890s boom. So, to say that the Panic of 1893 was devastating up Port Townsend is a bit of an understatement. The massive building that was constructed to house the post office and the court and the customs house is actually still standing elegantly today and occupies a prominent location on the bluff overlooking Port Townsend and its bay. If you've never been and want to check it out, it's located on 1322 Washington Street. It's very hard to miss this beautiful and striking Richardsonian Romanesque style building. It's easily one of the most impressive buildings and is one of my favorites in Port Townsend. Besides having the awesome distinction of being the first federally constructed post office built in the Evergreen State, this building is also the only example in the entire state of the federal government's use of the elegant Richardsonian Romanesque style of architecture. This gorgeous sandstone building features a three-story main block with a daylight basement flanked by two-story wings. A half-round tower projects from the front facade along with broad, round-arched windows and doorways. A striking pair of Romanesque columns flank the front entrance and help to add to the overall sense of massiveness when you stand near the building and marvel at its beauty. These features truly embody what the Richardsonian Romanesque style means, and let me just say that the people of Port Townsend are truly freaking lucky to be able to gaze at this majestic building whenever they want. The Port Townsend Post Office, Court, and Customs House is a contributing member to the National Historic Landmark-listed Port Townsend Historic District, and itself was added to the NRHP in 1991. Thanks to the efforts of many, this building has benefited wonderfully from a significant amount of maintenance, which means that a good majority of its original materials and features are still operable and in use today. Treasury agent Victor Smith, in the summer of 1865, found himself in San Francisco conducting official business relating to the Treasury Department. On the 28th of July, Victor Smith boarded the sidewheel passenger steamer SS Brother Jonathan that was bound for Portland, Oregon. Aboard the vessel were 192 passengers and a crew of 50 men and officers. Besides Special Treasury Agent Victor Smith aboard that day was Brigadier General George Wright who had recently been made the commander of the newly constituted Department of the Columbia, along with his wife and entire staff, and the paymaster for the Department of the Columbia, E.W. Eddy, who had with him $300,000 in gold coins that were meant to be paid to the troops at Fort Vancouver. Just two days into the voyage up the Pacific coast, on the 30th of July, the brother Jonathan struck the St. George Reef just north of Crescent City, California, during a howling gale and sunk to the depths of the Pacific within just a half hour. Only 16 of the 276 people aboard that fateful steamer that day ever made it onto a lifeboat, with 260 people drowning. Included among the dead was Victor Smith, General George Wright, along with his wife and entire entourage. The $300,000 worth of gold would also go down with the ship, Several of these pieces of gold have been discovered over the years. Coming up next, and the following week, will be a two-part episode looking into the life of a West Coast Seattle boy by the name of Jimi Hendrix. Let me just say that that one was fun to write and research. After that will be a Thanksgiving special looking at various events across the state involving humongously sized food items. Then to start off December, will be a look at the fascinating history of the county seat of Ferry County, the town of Republic. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a five-star review and don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss a new episode. Sources for this episode include HistoryLink.org, Port Townsend, Years That Are Gone by Peter Simpson and James Hermanson 2002, by Juan de Fuca's Strait, by James G. McCurdy, 1937. Exploring Washington's Past, A Road Guide to History, by Ruth Kirk and Carmela Alexander, 1990. The Last Wilderness, by Murray Morgan, 1955. Remember When, by Marjorie Daniels, 1988. Rural Jefferson County, Its Heritage and Maritime History, by James Hermanson, 2002. American Architecture Since 1780, A Guide to the Styles by Marcus Wiffen, 1969, the Washington Information System for Architectural and Archaeological Records data website, and the Washington State Office of Archaeology and Historic Preservation's website. Thank you for listening to Episode 15, Victor Smith vs. Port Townsend. Episode 16 will be released next week. A special thanks goes out to Al Hirsch for providing the music for the podcast. If you have any questions about the show, please contact historyoftheevergreenstatepod at gmail.com. That email address can also be found in the episode description, in addition to the link to Buy Me a Coffee, which offers you, the listener, the opportunity to support the show and to keep it going. One-time and monthly donations will go towards research material to assist me in continuing to put out these episodes. Thank you for listening to another episode of the History of the Evergreen State Podcast. And until next time, I'm your host, John C. Stay safe out there, everyone.
0: There's peace on the Skakomish, on the Queens and on the whole. There's Clam the Nisqually, born of ageless ice and snow, a land that nature loves so much she stays the whole year round. I trade a royal palace for a shack on Puget Sound. There's Chimicum and Stillicum, where spouts the gooey duck, the singing stillaguamish and the swirling skookum chuck, and Moclips and Copalis. Where the razor clams abound, a little bit of heaven is a shock on Puget Sound. A little bit of heaven is a shock on Puget Sound.